Welcome to episode 66 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast in another addition to the Atrocious August series. This, this episode is all about the forefather of shock rock, Screamin' Jay Hawkins. What a talented and interesting person he was. Y- you'll see. You're going to learn some of the highlights of Screamin' Jay Hawkins' life, his career, etc. in this episode. Plus, in this episode, there are some really, really, really great songs. Now, I couldn't find any covers of any Screamin' Jay Hawkins songs that I really liked, even though there are a thousand covers of I Put a Spell on You. So what I'm doing in this episode is this. There are two Alice Cooper covers, School's Out, as done by the band Blast, that was playing back at the very beginning of the episode and is playing in the background right now. After this little intro part, you'll hear the Alice Cooper song, Serious, as performed by Sloppy Seconds. Yeah, holy shit. Why Alice Cooper? Let me tell you why. Because without Scream and Jay Hawkins, I kind of think there wouldn't even be an Alice Cooper. Scream and Jay inspired Alice Cooper, his theatrics, his stage show, that kind of thing, as well as bands like Kiss, Scream and Lord Such, Tom Waits, The Cramps, Black Sabbath, Credence, Clearwater Revival. The list goes on and on and on. He was a very, very influential dude. After the two Alice Cooper songs, we have two songs by Rocket from the Crypt in this episode. Yes, the Rocket from the Crypt, San Diego's kings of rock and roll in my mind. I was trying to think of bands that put on a really great show, that kind of have something special going on, kind of like Scream and Jay did, and also a band that just fucking rocks. And there was Rocket from the Crypt, kind of at the top of my list if, if I was following those credentials. This is the first time that Rocket's been on a Bobcast as well. Happy day, good. They've been a favorite band of mine since the late 80s when I first heard them, so yeah, awesome, good stuff. In this episode, we're also going to hear a few words from our friends and the sponsors of this episode, Meteor Motorbikes of Oakland, California, and the illustrious Mouse and Monkey Button Company. Very, very good. Let's take that detour that I always like to take at the start of most of these Bobcast episodes. Beer of the episode. How did you enjoy my new intro into the beer of the episode? Hey, pretty fancy. Huh? You know, my audio skills are really getting up there. Production and audio. Yeah. Any? You need any work in any movies or any shit like that? Uh, get at me. Uh, give me a call, ring, email, whatever. I'm I'm very available. Thank you. The beer of this episode is Plan 9 Alehouse's Pucks and Pint. This was also the beer of the last episode as well. I love this beer. I think it deserves a revisit. So let's give this 4.9% alcohol by volume salty sour IPA a try and see if I still feel the same way about it. It's good. I think it's a little better than last time. It had a chance to kind of age a little bit. It's a little bit saltier. I think it's a really hot day. It's probably like 100 degrees where I'm recording this right now. While I wouldn't say this is necessarily the most refreshing beer on a really hot day, it is damn good. The saltiness did come up as it aged a little bit. It seems to me, maybe I just didn't remember correctly from last time, that is a damn good beer. It really is. As always, Plan 9 comes through with a great beer to my rescue. 
Plan 9 Ale House is located at 155 East Grand Avenue in lovely downtown Escondido, California. They're open every Wednesday through Saturday from 3 p.m. until 7 p.m. for delivery, takeout, and now curbside dining. Yes, great. Check Plan 9 Ale House out at www.plan9alehouse.com or you can give them a call at 760-489-8817 for more info. All right, let's get to it. I've got a lot to say about Screamin' Jay Hawkins, his history, his life, his shenanigans in this episode, and we've got some awesome songs to listen to. But first, a few words from our dear friends at Meteor Motorbikes, then on to the rest of the episode. Stay tuned. This summer, as you hit the road for that long ride, I'd like to ask you a question. After a long day of riding, why couldn't the motorcycle stand up by itself? It was too tired. Is your motorcycle feeling a little tired? Then take your bike into Meteor Motorbikes in West Oakland, California. Meteor Motorbikes specializes in diagnostics and repair of late model European and Japanese sport, street, and adventure motorcycles. In fact, Meteor Motorbikes has recently invested in the latest diagnostic tuning equipment and software to keep you and your motorcycle happily humming down the highway. Let Meteor Motorbikes handle the hard stuff. Service, diagnostics, and repairs to your motorcycle are a breeze with Meteor Motorbikes. Contact Meteor Motorbikes today for a quote. You can reach them via email at service at meteormotorbikes.com or via phone at area code 510-545-3738. Meteor Motorbikes is conveniently located in West Oakland at 2600 Magnolia Street, unit number 190. That's right under the East Bay side of the Bay Bridge. Call, email, or visit Meteor Motorbikes today. You and your two-wheeled best friend will be happy you did. Yeah. 
Screamin' Jay Hawkins was born on July 18, 1929 in Cleveland, Ohio. His birth name was Jalacy J. Hawkins, and it is said he was abandoned by his birth parents and then adopted by a family that was a member of the Blackfoot Native American tribe. That was when he was 18 months old, by the way. It is also said, or there is a tale that says Jalacy was born on a bus and he was named after a juice bar at the bus station. This is pre-juice bar days, though. It's very interesting. I can't find any references that actually verify that. So I think that's kind of like a little bit of a legend. I'm going to go out on a limb early on in this episode and just say, there may be many facets of Screamin' Jay Hawkins' life that might not be entirely true. Screamin' Jay Hawkins was larger than life. Uh, To me, that's completely beyond dispute. But I also think... He told some tales out of school about his life to maybe make himself seem a little bit more mysterious or something like that, like he was building mystique around himself. We shall see. It does look like his parents definitely did abandon him at an orphanage when he was very young, and he was adopted by a family of people that were Blackfoot. At an early age, Screamin' Jay learned how to play the piano, supposedly at around the age of four, and a little bit later in his life, the saxophone, but still when he was very young. That began his life that was filled with music. Screamin' Jay does claim he had a very happy childhood. Growing up, he was a very happy kid. Although, he did enlist in the Army when he was either 13 or 14 years old, and that was kind of right in the middle of World War II. There are claims out there he joined the Army in 1942. He saw combat when he was 13 years old. Then, in 1944, he signed up for the Air Force. While Screamin' Jay was in the Army and then the Air Force, he did become a boxer. That's definitely verifiable. This looks like the start of his love of being a performer. Boxing was kind of like performing to him, and he was a gnarly boxer, too. He was six feet tall, okay? And he was a pretty burly dude. He was a big guy. I read a quote from an interview with Screamin' Jay where he was talking about boxing saying he was in front of all these white soldiers and he was beating the shit out of this dude he was fighting who was a white man and this crowd of white soldiers were cheering him on. Keep in mind, this is the 1940s. If that was going on in the streets, like in a city or anywhere, anywhere else other than in a boxing ring, he'd get fucking killed for beating up or punching or even looking sideways at a white man. Plain and simple. It was another story in the boxing ring. However, Screamin' Jay also said in that same interview, he liked to play the audience. He'd like win a fight to everybody cheering him. Yeah, you all right, Jay. You know, then he would like lay down and play dead and everybody would start booing him and jeering him. He loved it. So it seemed he kind of had a flair for the dramatic very early on in his life. He also mentioned how good it felt as a black man to get some sort of validation of his humanity kind of by being cheered on by white people. That's fucked up, though, isn't it? That kind of makes it like this sort of gladiator-level shit, right? Like, are you not entertained? Yeah, that was my really bad Russell Crowe voice or impersonation. But that is the history of black people in the United States in some ways, right? In those days, black people could not get any kind of validation from white people by just existing, by being alive like everybody else. But... If you entertained these fucking racist white people, well, there you go. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what a fucked up world. I'm telling you. 
Screamin' Jay supposedly went on to become a boxing champ and was a Golden Gloves or middleweight champion of Alaska in 1949. Screamin' Jay and his history in the military is a subject of much debate, okay? He made some pretty big claims. He claimed he was a paratrooper that was captured by the enemy when he was being held captive by the Japanese during World War II. When he was released from a prison camp, he killed one of his captors by putting a grenade on the guy's face, like on his mouth, pulled the pin, walked away, bam, no more head for that guy. Holy fucking shit. Screamin' Jay also said he was wounded several times in battle, that in his own words, I got more marks on my body than the average crossword puzzle from knives, bombs, bullets, and being cut in half by a Japanese colonel in a prisoner of war camp. I even read, I read, and this is actually pretty funny, he suffered from very severe constipation. And he said he got that issue, that constipation issue, from wounds that he received either during World War II or the Korean War. You will hear later on in the episode about a little song Screaming Jay did called Constipation Blues. That's some fucking great A shit right there. Uh, literally, yeah, oh boy. Screaming Jay also claims that while he was in the military, he performed music for the troops, singing, playing the piano, and so forth. The boxing and the playing music for the other soldiers appears to be kind of the foundation for his career later in life. He learned how to play instruments very young. He became like a showman as a boxer, and he was performing for his buddies in the Army and in the Air Force. By his own admission, Screamin' Jay always wanted to be an opera singer. He attended the Ohio Conservatory of Music in 1943 prior to military service and studied opera. I don't know, with that bass baritone voice of his, I don't think that's a stretch. But it's also said that he joined the Army in maybe 1942, 1943, 1944. The dates are all weird. I checked several different sources for this, and nothing really lined up. But almost every every source that I have did say he did go to school and study opera at some point in his life. Kind of like I was alluding to earlier, here's another facet of Screamin' Jay Hawkins' life that might have some elements of untruth or, or just lies in there. Maybe, who knows? Well, let's talk about the real launch of Screamin' Jay Hawkins' music career. In 1951, Screamin' Jay joined a band led by a man named Tiny Grimes. Tiny Grimes has a pretty interesting history himself, actually, such as he recorded songs with Charlie Parker and with Billie Holiday at some point. The version of the Tiny Grimes band that Screamin' Jay joined was called Tiny Mech Grimes and the Rocking Highlanders. Jay was hired to be a valet, a bodyguard, a singer, and a pianist for the band. The band all wore kilts on stage, and some say like little Tam O'Shanters as well, little hats, right, as part of their act, because that's the type of music that Tiny Grimes and his band played, which jazz, kind of weird they dressed up like that, right? Well, I guess they had a hit with an old Scottish song called Annie Laurie at some point in their career. What's notable about Screamin' Jay's time in this band is he would completely steal the show when he was performing a song called Mama he treats your daughter mean. And while he was doing this song, he would wear a bunch of milk cans dangling from his chest that simulated female breasts. Yes, ever the showman, even at the very start of his performing career, that was Screamin' Jay Hawkins. 
So Screamin' Jay did some time in Tiny Grimes' band. That was in the early 1950s. He even worked for Fats Domino for a while after the Tiny Grimes gig, but he got kicked out of Fat Domino's band when he tried to perform in a leopard skin suit. Oh, Fats, 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 Fats. Blueberry Hill would have been much more of a thrill with Screamin' Jay along for the ride. That's my opinion, just my opinion, okay? Maybe around the time that Screamin' Jay got fired from Fat Domino's bands, he adopted the name Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Before that, he was going by either Jay Hawkins or Jalacy Hawkins. He started dressing very flamboyantly for his live shows around this time, too, wearing these leopard skin suits, big crazy hats, and like giant red leather boots, right? Like everything that surrounds Mr. Screamin' Jay Hawkins, uh, there are several different accounts of how he came by this name. The story of how he got his name is interesting in and of itself. There's kind of a cloud of mystery about it. Here are some of those origin stories of the name. One is Jalacy Hawkins was at a variety show in Nitro, West Virginia. He was asked on stage to sing for the guy who was kind of hosting this variety show. Jay didn't want to sing, so he started screaming and hollering and acting up, which led to a very drunk lady in the audience yelling out, Scream, baby, scream! Okay. <laughs> That's a pretty good one, actually. Another story is during a boxing match, someone yelled out the same thing due to Scream and Jay's kind of antics, dancing around, uh, acting the fool while in the ring. The last version of this story I'm going to mention is that a record label gave him the name OK Records, okay? And that OK Records is spelled O-K-E-H, OK Records. That was the label that supposedly gave Scream and Jay his name. But Scream and Jay signed to this label in 1955. Supposedly he had the name before that. Again, this kind of cloud of mystery and, you know, the unknown surrounds Scream and Jay Hawkins, I think. It really does. Here is, though, a quote from an interview Scream and Jay Hawkins gave in 1973 while discussing how he got his name. If it were up to me, I wouldn't be Screamin' Jay Hawkins. James Brown did an awful lot of screaming, but he never got called Screamin' James Brown. Why can't people take me as a regular singer without making a boogeyman out of me? So he's saying he didn't like the name. And in the context in which he's saying that, is that OK Records more or less forced him to use the name. Like he was saying, I don't like being called Screamin' Jay and the context in which the interviewer asked him the question was, why did your record label give you this name to use kind of thing? So here's another thing, too. Screamin' Jay was doing solo shows around 1954 prior to signing to OK. And as far as I know, he was using the Screamin' Jay Hawkins name instead of just plain old either Jalacy Hawkins or Jay Hawkins. So, yeah, I, fuck, I don't know for sure. At this point, it does feel like I'm kind of starting to split hairs a little bit about when he got his name. So... Who cares exactly when he got the name, right? What's important here? This next story that's coming up, and this is the last one before we'll take a little break, is the story of how the song I Put a Spell on You got made. This is a good one. This is a really good one. So Screamin' Jay Hawkins signed to OK Records, and OK was a subsidiary of Columbia Records at that time in 1955. In 1956, OK sent Screamin' Jay and his band into the studio to record the song. And at the time, see, I Put a Spell on You had already been released by another record label prior to this, and it was kind of just like a bluesy, kind of like a ballad type of song. Very tame, 
very easy to listen to, that kind of thing. The name of that record label that had put the song out before was Grand Records, and that was sometime in 1955. However, that recording, that version of that song, from 1955 until 2006, never saw the light of day. It never got released until 2006. And that original version of the song is fucking great. It's really, really good. It's not as great as the 1956 version, as we're going to learn about here in a sec. But goddamn, it is a really, really good song. Very much just a straightforward kind of blues song versus just the insanity of the song that we all know and love. And I'll tell you what, one thing about that original recording, that original version of I Put a Spell on You, it really shows you how fucking talented Screaming Jay Hawkins was because his voice is just honey and just, oh my God, it's so smooth and powerful and beautiful. It's really amazing. I think it's just as lovely in a different way in the song that we all know. But yeah, that original version of the song is absolutely fucking beautiful. It's great. You should check it out. I will put a link up on the website to where you can actually listen to it on YouTube. It's amazing. Definitely check it out. Go on the website after this is out and look that up. Scream and Jay and the band go into the studio. There's a producer there to greet them named Arnold Maxson. And there's a table full of food and booze waiting for Scream and Jay and the band. Uh, Let's fuck. Let's party, right? Let's go. Let's get fucked up, eat a bunch of food, and do this song. All right. Arnold Maxson wanted the song to sound wild. And, oh, yes, he definitely got more than he bargained for. According to Scream and Jay himself, and I'm quoting, Maxson brought in ribs and chicken and got everybody drunk And we came out with this weird version of the song. Yes, there was beer, whiskey, ribs, and chicken. Everybody got fucked up. They all had food comas from eating so much. And the result was that version of I Put a Spell on You that we all know and love so well. Apparently, Screamin' Jay and pretty much the whole band blacked out while they were recording the song. The next day... The studio played back the prior evening's take of the song for Scream and Jay and the rest of the band, and Jay didn't remember recording the fucking song. He goes, wait, that's we did this? When did we do that? What, wait, what the f- What is this? This song's supposed to be, like, totally different. Like, blues, this is... He's going... Shit like that for, like, fucking 20 minutes. Oh, my God. So the song did definitely become Screamin' Jay's trademark, his fucking, that was his song. That's a song that he is definitely the most well-known for, and it's been covered a million fucking times. He didn't even remember recording the goddamn song. He was so fucked up, okay? He said he actually, he had to listen to the song over and over again in order to learn how to perform that version of the song because he couldn't duplicate it. He's like, I don't, I don't know what I was doing with my mouth. There was some interview where he was talking about it. And he's like, if I just stand there and kind of like let my mouth hang and shake my head back and forth. And I have, but I had to get practice how to recreate the sounds of this recording that we did. So yes, indeed. To me, that's one of the strangest stories in the history of rock and roll. Okay, here's why. The song was changed from the original when the band and the singer of the band got just fucking drunk as shit. What resulted from this just drunken fucking fest of partying ended up being 
a huge, a rock and roll classic and defined Screamin' Jay Hawkins's career. One night, just one extremely drunken night, literally changed everything for Screamin' Jay Hawkins. All right. <laughs> wow. I mean, doesn't that blow you away? That fucking blows me away. Just one drunken fucking raging party that changed the course of this man's entire life. On that note, let's take a little break. We're going to hear a few words from our good friends at Mouse and Monkey Button Company, and then the song Born in 69 by Rocket from the Crypt. Then on to part two. Stay tuned. <laughs> Do you know what I notice when I leave the safety of my hidey hole lately? The hordes of mindless and shambling zombie-like people stumbling around just lack that certain something that could set them apart from the crowd. The solution? A custom-made button from Mouse and Monkey Button Company. Yes, even what appears to be a rotting corpse can be brought back to life with a button from Mouse and Monkey. Any type of image can be made into a custom button. A photo of your dog, Sparky? A photo of your sister Barbara or your favorite white zombie tribute band. Yes, the possibilities are without end. Do you ever feel like you can't find your keys or a bottle opener when you need them? That you're in need of more brains in that type of situation? Well, Mouse and Monkey has a solution for those spectral keys and beastly missing bottle openers. You can also get custom-made keychains and magnetic bottle openers from Mouse and Monkey. Problem solved. When you're in the need of a quick escape from the unearthed undead, you're sure to have easy access to that custom keychain, thanks to Mouse and Monkey. Don't forget the bottle opener. It's right there on the fridge, again, thanks to Mouse and Monkey. Mouse and Monkey Button Company. Surviving the zombie apocalypse of 2020 will be a breeze when you get these custom keychains, bottle openers, and buttons from Mouse and Monkey. Inspiration is a 
Welcome to part two of the episode and the last half of this episode. Before that little break, we were talking about the recording session that produced the song, I Put a Spell on You, the version of the song that we all know it as today. As I previously noted, there is an older and tamer version of the song out there, but that Halloween party version of the song was recorded in a drunken orgy of beer, whiskey, and delicious foods. I could record like that. I could. The recording might sound like shit. Uh, that is a great way to get through a very tedious recording session. I would think get shit-faced and fucking go for it. The very drunk and crazy version of this song from that recording was released to very heavy criticism and not a lot of initial sales. People thought that the grunting, the screaming, and there was a noise of like bones rattling represented an overt sexuality. The grunts made people think of people having sex and uptight white America did not appreciate that kind of thing at that time. Also, voodoo and pagan ritual stuff came to mind when people heard that first version of this recording, right? OK Records then released a cleaned up version of the recording. It took out a lot of the grunting noises and that version of the song was much more well received. Still, a lot of radio stations refused to play the song and even the NAACP got into the act. They condemned the song and Scream and Jay Hawkins saying they were worried that his act would reflect badly on African-Americans. That is a quote by someone from the NAACP sometime around 1956, by the way. Well, around that time, radio disc jockey Alan Freed heard the song, I Put a Spell on You, and he invited Scream and Jay Hawkins to play at one of his rock and roll reviews. That was kind of like a big show kind of thing with a bunch of rock and roll bands. Alan Freed is credited with coining the term or phrase rock and roll. He was also known for playing music made and performed by black people at a time when that was definitely not the norm. Alan Freed was pretty groundbreaking in a lot of ways. He really was. He got involved in the scandal not long after he met Screamin' Jay, and that scandal involved him taking money from record labels to play certain performers or artists on the air. And that was a big no-no in that kind of, you know, mid to late fifties period. All right. I might do an episode about Alan Freed at another time. Dude died when he was like 43 of cirrhosis of the liver and other complications related to alcoholism. Yeah. He was kind of a gnarly dude. What's important to this story about screaming Jay Hawkins though, is what happened between Alan Freed and screaming Jay at one of these rock and roll reviews. According to lore, and also several sources that I looked into, including Screamin' Jay Hawkins himself, Alan Freed offered Screamin' Jay some money at this show if he'd pop out of a coffin on stage right before his performance started. The dollar figure? Well, that's a little like everything else that has to do with Screamin' Jay Hawkins. It's a fluid number. It changes. It's really hard to pin down, okay? Screamin' Jay has said himself it was $2,000. He's also said it was $2,500. Wikipedia, and I'm probably going to stick with this figure, says it was around 300 bucks. Now, in 1956 or sometime around then, that was a pretty good chunk of change. That wasn't bad. But hold on a second. Here are a few words from the man himself, Screaming Jay Hawkins, as to how this whole coffin thing went down. And this is taken from what appears to be Screaming Jay Hawkins' final interview. The interview is from a French blues magazine called Soul Bag, and it was done shortly before Screamin' Jay died. 
when Screamin' Jay was asked about the whole coffin story and the origin story of the coffin as part of his act, this is what he had to say. Alan Freed, he created the whole thing. We had this show where I'm screaming, screaming, and doing I put a spell on you. And he says, well, you know, Jay, with what you're doing, you don't need to come on stage like normal artists. You need to be a little different. At this time, we were working the only rock and roll show ever put on in Times Square, New York, at the Paramount Theater. When Frank Sinatra closed, Alan Freed opened the next day. The theater where we worked was six floors down, and he carried me down to the stage in the back behind the curtains. He'd already purchased this ghastly-looking coffin. I said, you're sick. There's no black person in the world going to get in a coffin alive. Jay, you will do this. I says, no way. No way, man. Are you afraid of death? I says, nope. I'm going to die one day, but I'm not going to tempt it. Jay, if you wheel out on the stage in this coffin, it'll shock those people out there. And I said, yeah, it'll shock me too. But he kept peeling $100 bills. He got to $2,500 and something said, grab it. That's what happened. It started when I realized the impact of that coffin. About three months later, I walked to Bob Hall, the electrician of the Apollo Theater. He said, I heard about this coffin you upset people with in Times Square. Why don't you get a skeleton? Why don't you have hands that move? Why don't you make fire shoot from your fingertips? Why don't you wear a bone in your nose and come out of a coffin with all this happening at once? I'll make you a fuse box, and when the smoke goes off, it'll look like it brought you out of the coffin. When we blow the smoke again, you disappear from the stage, and you're back in the coffin. He did it, and it worked, and I've been doing it ever since. So, <laughs> so there's a... There's Screamin' Jay's version of the origin of the coffin as part of his act, okay? Here's another supposed quote from Screamin' Jay about the coffin, and he's, where, where he says, No black dude gets in a coffin alive. They don't expect to get out. And that's fucking heavy, considering the state-sanctioned racism that was in full-blown, like, evil fucking swing in the United States at that time. That's heavy as shit. I mean, don't fuck around with a coffin because the reality of his life was... He could get killed for kind of any reason at any time if a white person decided it was his time to go. So, yeah, ah, that's gnarly and not fucking cool. Screaming Jay did it, though. Like he said in that last interview, from that day on, the coffin was part of the act, as was a cigarette-smoking skull on a stick named Henry. Uh, rubber snakes, a bone through the nose, crazy gold and leopard-skin print suits, all kinds of over-the-top stuff at that time, that is. Now, a funny side note, Screamin' Jay got a lot of attention, right? Not all of it good from organizations like the NAACP and what they perceived as his role in making black people look bad. One other organization that complained about Screamin' Jay Hawkins and his act was called the National Casket Association. Apparently, they thought that Screamin' Jay's use of a coffin in his act was poking fun at the dead. Yes, the National Casket Association, or maybe the Casket Manufacturers Association of America. I don't know. This company gets referenced in several different articles about Screamin' Jay, and I cannot verify that they actually ever existed. They supposedly even went so far as to ban Screaming Jay from renting coffins while he was out on tour. Well, what did Screamin' Jay do? He bought his own coffin, and he also bought a hearse. And he had the hearse painted with a zebra stripe pattern, very, very much in character for this man who was truly becoming 
the forefather or originator of the shock rock genre. Yes, I've alluded to this before in this episode. I definitely do think Screamin' Jay Hawkins originated the genre of shock rock, at least the way we know it today. Well, Screamin' Jay's stage decor, outfits, his act, it was all ready to go. So what did he do? He embarked on a 40-plus year career of fucking rock and roll, blues, and jazz-inspired mayhem. Within those years, from the late 50s until his death in the year 2000, Screamin' Jay toured with The Clash. He toured with Nick Cave. He was in several movies. Also worked with the band Dread Zeppelin on a record that was uh, disco songs. Yes, indeed. Screamin' Jay always stayed busy. He really did, right up until the end. Speaking of ends, yes, there was a song by Screamin' Jay Hawkins released in 1969 called Constipation Blues. That song was a single along with the song Feast of the Mau Mau. Constipation Blues is a song about having a hard time taking a shit. Yes, and we went talked about that back in the beginning during his military service, according to Screamin' Jay, this constipation issue that he had was caused by wounds he received in either World War II or Korea. Okay. In this song, Screamin' Jay grunts. He makes pooping noises. He screams just kind of all around general gibberish, okay? Here's the actual introduction to the original version of this song. Ladies and gentlemen, most people record songs about love, heartbreak, loneliness, being broke, Nobody's actually went out and recorded a song about real pain. The band and I have just returned from the general hospital where we caught a man in the right position. We named this song Constipation Blues. <laughs> and that's, that's the actual words that Screamin' Jay says at the very beginning of this song, Constipation Blues. It's a song about having a hard time taking a poop. Oh my God, that's fucking great. <laughs> you have to hear it. You have to hear the original version of that song with that intro. It's so great. Well, let's just say that song was not a big hit. I guess uh, people in 1969 really didn't have as much of a sense of humor as they should have, right? I think it's fucking hilarious. I really do. Screamin' Jay did perform that song live on occasion while sitting on a toilet from time to time. And you also, I'll put a link on the webpage on the page for this episode of him doing the song live. Oh my God. It is pretty fucking great. It, it truly is great. One more thing about Screamin' Jay's music before we move on to the very end. In 1991, he released an album that was called Black Music for White People. That record had, very notably, two Tom Waits covers, Heart Attack and Vine and Ice Cream Man. The album title was a jab, at the appropriation of black culture by white people. I mean, Screamin' Jay saw that his entire life. From the boxing ring, rock and roll and music in general, it wasn't okay to be a black person just existing in the United States. But white folks sure did eat up music performed by black people, didn't they? They really did. That's pretty fucked up. That has always been an area of contention for me. How white people have appropriated black culture profited fucking massively off of it. Look at fucking Pat Boone. Fuck you, Pat Boone, wherever you are, whatever level of hell you're in. He is dead, right? Isn't Pat Boone dead? God, I hope he's dead because that fucker, yeah, he fucked everything up. 
Pat Boone's why we have Trump, too. Did you know that? I do a lot of that. I do a lot of tracing uh, back of why we have Trump now to really shitty things in the history of the United States. And Pat Boone is one of the reasons why we have Trump. <sighs> Maybe. I, I don't know, but yeah, I would suspect so. But let me just say, that kind of culture that Screamin' Jay was taking a poke at with black music for white people, that was one of the reasons why Screamin' Jay moved to and lived in France for a very long time. That Just like James Baldwin did it, kind of for the same reason, to flee the rampant prejudice and racism towards black people in the United States. Isn't that fucked up? I mean, they went to another country to get away from how shitty they were treated in the United States. That speaks volumes. It really does, and it's really fucking sad. There is a fact, though, that Screamin' Jay was very popular in Europe, and he did tour there extensively throughout his career. That's another reason he wanted to move to Europe, so he could be closer to where he was popular, where he had gigs, where he had a lot going on, that kind of thing. Well, very sadly, on February 12th of the year 2000, 70-year-old Screamin' Jay Hawkins died of complications arising from surgery to treat an aneurysm near Paris, France. That's on 212. That's crazy. 212. He left behind six ex-wives and possibly up to 75 children. That is another story for another time. I just want to say this. What a fucking talent Screamin' Jay Hawkins was. Disregard the more flamboyant aspects of Screamin' Jay Hawkins and what you have underneath all of that, that big act and his stage show and all that, which I think is a huge part of his appeal as well. But if you just listen to his voice, you have an extremely talented person. That voice, in my mind, could move mountains deep as the fucking ocean, like the rumbling of the earth. His voice really gets me, like right where it counts, right in the fucking feels. I'm telling you. Let me give you some suggested listening. Besides, I put a spell on you for screaming Jay Hawkins. You have to hear Constipation Boost just to hear it. It's fucking funny. Is it a great song? Eh, no, not really. It's kind of your typical blues progression kind of thing with some funny shit going on from Mr. Hawkins, but you do have to hear it at least once. It is pretty fucking hilarious. Whistling Past the Graveyard is a cover that Screamin' Jay did, and that is a fucking great song. The way he did it is fucking great. The song Little Demon, pure fucking rock and roll. And great fucking song. I honestly think that anything Screamin' Jay Hawkins did is worth checking out. I don't think you'll be disappointed if you enjoy blues and rock and roll. Everything the guy touched, I think, is pretty goddamn good. There's one more song, too. His version of the song Stand By Me originally done by Benny King, is so goddamn great. You really get the full force of Screamin' Jay's voice. The power in his voice comes out so, so strongly in that song. Listen to Screamin' Jay Hawkins. He has way more songs than that one song that you play at your Halloween party when you're dressed up as, like, the drunk dude with face paint or whatever the fuck it is you do at your Halloween parties. I don't know. I don't care. That's going to do it for this episode. Check out Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Listen to his music. You won't be disappointed. I really do hope you enjoyed this very condensed and picked over history of Screamin' Jay Hawkins. I really enjoyed doing the research, listening to Screamin' Jay songs over and over again. I definitely picked my stories from his life that were my favorite as well as kind of laid out a very basic framework of the life of the man 
the myth, Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Thank you so much to the sponsors of this episode, Meteor Motorbikes of Oakland, California, and Mouse and Monkey Button Company. I appreciate your support of the Bobcast. A huge thank you, as always, to the bands that let me play the songs in this episode, Blast, Sloppy Seconds, and Rocket from the Crypt. Follow the links on the Bobcast website to buy some stuff from those bands if you'd like. I'm sure they would appreciate it. And as always, thank you for listening. You are always appreciated by me. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm going to leave you with Screamin' Jay Hawkins' final words from his final interview where he was basically talking about what he did and why he did it with his whole career. And then you're going to hear the song Ball Lightning by Rocket from the Crypt. Here's the quote from Screamin' Jay. I'm just happy to be alive and still have a name and work and people will come and see me. I ain't looking for nothing else. I will die with the same satisfaction, but I've got what I want. And as long as I can do it, I'm happy. As long as I can make the people happy, that's the best part. So whatever I do, I use my costumes, my bones, and give them a show. I play the instruments and entertain the people. And at 70 years old, I can still be a main attraction. So I'm very pleased. I love true musicians, true entertainment. God, I love it. I can't get enough of it. Rest in rock and roll, Mr. Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Here's Rocket from the Crypt.